جاش very good to see you all this wonderful Lord's Day evening. If uh, you would like to open up your Bibles to John chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, that's going to be our text this evening, John 2, 11 through 22. And just because we uh, honor the word of the Lord here, I'm going to ask you all to stand up for the reading of the word of the Lord. This is John 2, 11 through 22. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remember that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This has been the reading of the King. You may be seated. So we've been going through the Gospel of John, and uh, if you aren't familiar with the Gospel of John, the primary purpose of John's gospel is to prove to you that this man named Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. Verses 1, or chapter 1, verse 1 of John's gospel is in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and this Word is the Logos, and the Logos, later in John 1.13 says, came down and dwelt among us. And John's entire point in every passage that you read is to prove that Jesus is very God, a very God. And so we read of the testimony of John the Baptist who came before Jesus as a way to prepare for him. He's baptizing Jews in the wilderness and saying that the kingdom of heaven is upon us. And Jesus walks by and says, uh, and John says, behold the Lamb of God who was slain before the world, and points to him and says, this is the one who has come whom you have been waiting for. Now, we move on in the text where Jesus is baptized, and the Holy Spirit descends upon him, and you hear the Father say, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Jesus then goes to the wedding of Cana, changes the water into wine, uh, confronts the Hebrews there, and we move to the, our text today where it's the Passover and he's cleansing the temple. And this text as well proves the deity of Jesus Christ. However, the, the purpose of 
Primarily, we're going over verses 18 through 22, but I wanted to go back a little bit to keep it in context. Our main point of the text today is Jesus was fulfilling messianic prophecy, and the Jews in his audience who should have been aware of those prophecies could not tell what he was doing. Those who are more concerned with their own well-being and building their own kingdoms and their own lives cannot see what God is doing when he is building his own kingdom. The three points I'm going to be making um, that you should look out for are Jesus Christ's prophetic fulfillment, Jesus Christ's fulfillment of the temple, and Jesus Christ, this is a big word, typological fulfillment. Um, and we're going to define that later as we get through the text. But Jesus Christ's pro- prophetic fulfillment. Just a few weeks ago, if you had come to the hymn sing at the Shanikers for Christmas, uh, we tried our best at singing Handel's Messiah. Uh, it's a song that's renowned for enrapturing its audience in the epic of Christ's incarnation. Handel begins not with the birth of Christ. Rather, Handel begins his... Messiah with prophecy, foretelling the coming of John the Baptist in Isaiah 41 through 5, stanzas 1 through 4 of Messiah speak of John being the voice in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord. Then stanzas 5 through 7 are the final prophecies in the Old Testament of just what this Messiah to come would look like. Those are Haggai 2, 6 through 7, and Malachi 3, 1 through 3. And what do these Old Testament texts have to do with our text today? And I just want us to have this in mind, because I think it's the definer for how we understand this passage. Is Verse 22 says, After Jesus Christ was risen from the dead, his disciples remember that he had said this, that the temple will be destroyed and in three days I will raise it up. So they remember this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. And so the question is, what scripture? What scripture did they believe? And it's supposed to draw the reader's mind back to what were the scriptures at that time that the Jews were believing? What were the prophecies that were foretelling who this Messiah would be And what indicators in the text let us know which scriptures exactly were they thinking of when John wrote this? Um, Let me read Malachi 3, and I think it will be pretty plain to all of us why Handel thought he needed to begin his epic symphony with Old Testament prophecy. And I'm going to read a little bit farther than Handel goes, but I think it's prevalent for us today. This is Malachi 3. 1 through 5. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the, word, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. 
Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. That's a lot of text, I know. However, I think it helps us understand why John chooses to begin Jesus' public ministry right after the cleansing of Cana, with, or the, the miracle at Cana with the cleansing of the temple. Matthew, where Matthew, Mark, and Luke all recount the cleansing of the temple at the end of their Gospels, towards the end of Jesus' ministry, John opens with the cleansing of the temple. Some commentators would say that's because John is formed more thematically than chronologically. But I think the most faithful commentators would say that Jesus began his ministry cleansing the temple and ended his ministry cleansing the temple. I don't think there's any contradiction here. There's two cleansings, one at the beginning and one at the end. John emphasizes the earlier cleansing. Let's look at the text in Malachi of, with this coming Messiah. Verse 1a, the messenger of God goes ahead and prepares the way. We've mentioned who that is, John the Baptist. John's gospel begins with the testimony of John the Baptist ahead of Christ and Christ's baptism by John as the consecration of Christ's earthly ministry. Jesus really didn't do all that much before he was baptized. There were plenty of miracles attending his life, and he did go to the temple when he was 12, but he didn't begin doing his work um, publicly for the world to see until he was baptized. Jesus, or John, prepared the way. Second half of verse 1, the Lord himself is going to appear in his own temple. The Lord whom the faithful Jews had been seeking will appear. Who did Christ appear to first before he cleansed the temple in his zeal and fury? Pay attention that it is those in whom he, that those who delight in the Lord will see the Lord in his temple in Malachi first. In Luke 2, we see Jesus' first appearance in the temple um, when he is brought to the house of God. Uh, there's Simeon. And Simeon, uh, one of the first receivers as Christ as God, Christ as Messiah, in faith, sees this little boy as the, in the way he ought to see him and gives him honor and reverence. And we have one of Simeon's songs. Uh, we have a song called Simeon's Song that is reverencing Christ as the Lord. So the first time Jesus goes to the temple, he's honored as Messiah. Um, and then we move from this first appearance in the temple to this next appearance in his public ministry, which is in first two through four, with that oh-so-famous line from Handel's Messiah, who shall stand when he appeareth. Um, what Christ does in John 2, 11 through 22, is the cleansing of the temple foretold by the prophet Malachi 500 years before Christ's coming. Notice how Jesus' cleansing of the temple perfectly pairs with the prophecy of Malachi. Who shall stand when he appears? Christ shows up on the scene with a cord of whips, and one man alone, Jesus Christ, cleanses the temple courts. That's, that's a, we don't think about that. It's just one guy did it. One man. 
All of these people there, money changers with their livelihoods. He's whipping the oxen now. His disciples aren't helping him. There's no one coming alongside him. The Lord himself goes to the temple and not a single man prevents him from cleansing this temple. He's fulfilling the prophecy right before their eyes. No one resisted his cleansing. He scrubbed them hard with whips to scourge. He came to purify his Levites. Um, Levites were a, a set of people in the Old Testament set aside by God to, um, to perform the worship of God in the temple, to do the sacrifices, the priests. Um, and we see that uh, Christ came to purify the sons, the Levites. Um, and in verse, so that in verse 3 in Malachi, it says that they would bring offerings of righteousness un to the Lord, that the offerings of God might be pleasing to the Lord, as in former years. And when we read in verse 20 of John 2, that it took 46 years to build the temple that they were standing in when the Jews were confronting him, um, God was calling those Jews through Malachi to emulate the same faith that those who rebuilt the temple, Ezra and Nehemiah had in rebuilding the temple. Christ wanted the Jews of his days to go out of their ways to purify themselves, just as the Jews in the original building of the second temple did. In their sacrificial offerings and contributions, in their standing in the assembly and hearing the word of the Lord and weeping and committing themselves to it, in their putting away of foreign wives and the consecration of their hearts to pure worship of God, this was what Jesus Christ was doing in his cleansing. However, the worship of the Jews in Jesus' day had fallen far, far short of the true sacrifice and love to God that those earlier Jews had. Evident by the fact that Christ had to come and cleanse it in the way he did. Um, and as a side note, the reason why the Jews said that the temple had taken 46 years to build when they were standing in it, when Ezra 2 and 3 says that the original construction only took 20 years, was because Herod the Great continued to add construction and ornamentation after the original construction. Um, Josephus Antiquities actually records like what time frames uh, built into the temple, what was happening. There's like a nine-year period where they added outward ostentation and a, another 16-year year period where they added extra rooms. And so uh, uh, contradictors of the Bible will say there's a contradiction here, but in fact, the Bible has extreme historical accuracy. Um, but verse 5 in Malachi, moving forward in Malachi, uh, speaks to Jesus as a witness against the rampant evil doing going on in his days. Think of the demon possessions, the Roman occupation of Israel, the unjust taxations, the genocide of children when Herod sought Jesus at his birth, the sensuality in the court of Herod and how his wickedly gained money was the money that was contributing to God's temple when David was prevented from building the temple, Herod thought himself fit enough to do so. Um, it is only after Jesus permanently purifies the temple, only after Jesus is resurrected, that Malachi is finally and fully fulfilled. Because those priests under the old covenant would never be consecrated enough in the ministrations of the old covenant to offer sacrifices of righteousness 
But Peter tells us that we are that holy nation now. And all those who participate with by faith in Christ offer living sacrifices that Christ is fully pleased in. And so Christ came and did purify the temple by destroying it. And we're going to get there. Um, so which is why when the Jews ask for a sign in verse 18 of John 2 as to what authority had to be cleansing the temple... Yeah, they ask for a sign, and the way that this structure, the structure of this is in the Greek is basically they're saying, um, what are you doing to prove that you can even do this, right? It's almost like they're asking for what credentials Jesus has in order to be doing what he's doing. Um, they're not looking for a sign so much as to determine like what God is doing with their lives, like how we think of signs. They're saying prophets do miracles and they, it proves their validity in order to do, tell us things for our life. And Jesus uh, is fulfilling prophecy. He is doing exactly what the scriptures said he would do. And that in itself should have been enough to vindicate his authority. And he answers them as a prophet. With Malachi in the back of our minds, um, we know that Jesus had this authority to be doing what he was doing um, because he was doing it. Uh, with the working of the work, he was accomplishing the prophecy of the text. The, the text itself justified his works that was spoken 500 years earlier right before their eyes. Um, and instead of Simeon, who received this Messiah, in faith, without an attendant miracle, these Jews see the prophecy going before their eyes and they're not thinking of it at all. They're thinking the money's going out the door. They're thinking the way that we're stuffing our pockets is departing. And the reason why they didn't confront him is because they knew they were all hypocrites. They, their consciences were pricked. They're the priests of God. They should have known better. And yet they're coming down and they're questioning Jesus. Imagine God has given you his word, called you his people, called you to bind it to your hearts and your minds, and you're so removed from the heart of his scriptures when the prophecy foretold telling you what this Messiah would be like comes to pass right before your very eyes, you don't receive it as a work from God with all authority and power, but rather ask God for some kind of justification as to what he was doing. It wasn't enough that they were being plainly called on their hypocrisy. It wasn't enough that nobody stopped this one man from cleansing it out of out all the temple of its evil. It wasn't enough that his reputation would have preceded him. It wasn't enough that John the Baptist had been proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God and repentance towards God. It wasn't enough that Jesus came and did exactly as the prophecy in Malachi foretold. Um, these unbelieving Jews in the temple had exactly zero spiritual insight. They couldn't read the Bible. They read the Bible, but they didn't understand it. So they asked for his credentials. And ever the cycle of self-perpetuating human authority spins its wheels in the face of God, whose chariots of fire are eyes upon eyes and wheels within wheels. When he who wrote the law of God with his very own finger stood before them, these religious men still did what was right in their own eyes. 
We cannot presume upon the word of God. We cannot think to ourselves that because we have some cursory or even deep knowledge of the Bible, we're going to have deep insight into God. Yes, you must know the Bible. You must read the Bible. You must memorize the Bible. You must saturate yourself into it. These were men and women who were in the temple, uh, who were aware of the scriptures and what they had to say, and yet they were oh so ignorant of God that when he was right in front of him, they could not see him. And don't believe that it could not be true for you. Especially when upsetting situations happen to us in our lives, we are more than happy to say that we see God plainly when things are going well for us. But as soon as the tables are turned and flipped upside down, we go, God, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? We, we don't submit to his providences in those times. We often rebel against them. You know, this kind of understanding of God doesn't come from the study of books. Yes, read books. But it doesn't come from them. It comes from the Holy Spirit. Yes, of course, be in the Bible as much as you can. But ask the Lord to teach you. Humbly receive by the power of his spirit the meaning of the text. There are atheists out there that know the Bible better than you or I do, and they do not understand it one lick. You need to have an understanding of the Bible that looks out into the world to see what God is doing in your life and the lives of the people in your life. A Christianity that limits God's work to the paper and binding of the Bible is not a living faith. Your Christianity must affirm that God is only known through the scriptures, but also that this God you learn from the scriptures is living and active in the world and also in your life, and he is able to do things that you don't want him to do all the time. He has authority over your life to turn it upside down and claim you as his own if he wants to. That's point one. Point two, Jesus Christ's fulfillment of the temple. What does it mean exactly when Jesus refers to the temple of his own body in verse 19? What is Jesus communicating to these unbelieving Jews who don't believe their Bibles? First, we have to note that Jesus is telling them that they are going to destroy the temple of his body. He says, destroy the temple of this body. He doesn't say, I'm going to destroy the temple of this body. Referring to them as the subject of the sentence, he says, destroy the temple of this body. And in and in three days, I will raise it up. We have to make sure that we pay very close attention to the fact that from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he was, knowing he was going to be crucified for the accusations of his own people. There was never a plan A for Jesus. Like maybe if he did everything right, there was a way for him where he didn't have to go to the cross. No, the cross was plan A. The cross at the hands of his own people who were meant to be his closest worshipers, was plan A. Now why is that? Why is Jesus referring to his body as the temple? The temple was the place where God dwelt in the Old Testament. They built it up, and when they built it up, it was filled with this thing called the Shekinah glory, which was this fog that was glorious, and it scared everybody because it was so magnificent. Um, and it was where God dwelt. Um, the temple was the, where the place God forgave sins. 
Who was Jesus Christ? God in the flesh. God was more present in Jesus Christ than ever he was present in the Old Testament temple. Jesus was God, the temple never was God, and yet people treated the temple as God. What did Jesus come down to do? Do, down to do. John 1.13 says he came down and dwelt among us. God met with his people. That's where God, in the Old Testament, God met with his people in the temple. Jesus Christ now is the means that God meets with his people. What was Jesus Christ's primary mission to accomplish? We just read it. The cross. To be the sacrifice of God for the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus Christ was asserting his own deity and place of importance in the economy of God by identifying himself as the temple of God. Remember what I said at the very beginning. The purpose of John is to prove that Jesus is God. This is never another statement of Jesus Christ that says, you think that God is in the temple? I am the temple of God. That means I'm God. Not only that, but the whole gospel of John is set up to demonstrate that Christ is the substance of all that the temple pointed to in its sacrifices and rituals. Think about it this way. In the temple, there is the water and the lave for ritual washings and purifications. Jesus is baptized and does his first miracle with jars of water that were at the wedding for purification. There are chapters in the temple that have fruit embossed on them where the priests of God were meant to be crying out to God from a pure heart. And he calls one of his first disciples, Nathan, from underneath a fig tree in whom he says, behold a Jew and in there is no guile. There is the Paschal lamb, which is the lamb of the Passover, which was sacrificed every year for the sins of the people. John cries out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There is the showbread on the altar that is meant to be perpetually there, and Jesus Christ calls himself the bread of heaven. There is the burnt offering upon the altar to be eaten by priests completely, and we eat the Lord Jesus in the Lord's table as often as we remember him. Jesus prays as a priest on behalf of the people of God in John 17. And finally, when the veil of his flesh is torn upon the cross and he gives up the ghost to his father, the thick curtain that separated the people from the holy of holies is torn from top to bottom. The temple existed because through types and shadows, every aspect of it pointed to a truer and greater temple who is Jesus Christ. And all of the substance of the work of the temple was actually performed in the heavenly realm by Christ and not through the means of the temple at all. The temple was just a picture. Which is exactly what the writer to Hebrews says in Hebrews 8, 5 through 6. They serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, that is the pattern of the temple. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. So, when the temple finally and fully shows its incapability to purify the people of their sins, Jesus Christ comes in and purifies the place of purification. The priests had to make sacrifices over and over and over and over and over again because the ministry of the old covenant in the temple couldn't actually save a single person from their sins. 
Jesus cleanses the temple two times in the space of three years. When Jesus Christ is God in the flesh on this earth, he has to do it two times in three years for the same problem because the temple was defunct. The temple couldn't do what it was intended to do. In three years, it was filled with robbers and thieves and, and, uh, and people who take bribes. And the priests were uh, taking bribes from the people. The temple couldn't do it. And Jesus Christ comes down and purifies the temple in his zeal. The moment the temple was purified by Christ, it began immediately to be corrupted. For the rulers in it were corrupt. Christ had to do away with the old covenant worship system and replace it with the new covenant because the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ was more full and satisfying in the sight of God than all of the most pure and well-intentioned sacrifices that have ever occurred in history combined. In addition, the verse that the disciples had thought of when he had cleansed the temple gives us some insight into why Jesus spoke of the temple of his body had to be destroyed. It's a quotation from Psalm 69, 9, where it says, they thought of this scripture, um, for zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. The John text quotes the first half, but the second half is, I think, just as important, and we're supposed to be thinking about it. Christ assumed the guilt of the temple worship in himself. Just as uh, fathers in your house, if your children are high schoolers and they uh, go out and they are hoodlums and they come back and the police officers have to escort them to your house, you're responsible, Dad. And Jesus Christ took that responsibility to cleanse his acts. Um, so uh, the first temple had to be destroyed because of the sin and idolatry of the people. So the guilt incurred in the sin and idolatry of the second temple warranted its destruction. Jesus Christ was so jealous of the pure worship of God that he assumed the guilt of the temple on its behalf and received the punishment earned on its behalf so that all those who participate with God through faith in Jesus Christ are freed to offer holy, pure, and living sacrifices to God. Although the second temple, the actual building, was destroyed in 70 AD, as Jesus prophesied in Luke 21.6, the worship of God was not done away with. If the old covenant was still enacted, you and I would not be worshiping God here today. We'd be left bereft. We couldn't offer sacrifices. We'd be without the means to come to God in the temple. We'd be pretending right now. I don't know if you think about it that way, but if the old covenant was still enacted, we could not worship God here. But worship was not done away with because as was prophesied by Isaiah in chapter 8:14, God has become our sanctuary. God has become our temple. All of the worship that was meant to occur in the temple is now no longer allocated to a physical instrument or a geographical location. Men and women, boys and girls can all worship God anywhere and everywhere because of Jesus Christ becoming the means of pure worship through the destruction of his body on the cross. And it is also a warning for us who call ourselves Christians and worship God. If God came to cleanse the temple of the Old Testament with his zeal 
and fury because of their disobedience to his word in the temple of God, how much more serious ought we to be about the worship we offer God? We need to make sure that we offer worship to God that is pleasing to him. We cannot worship God however we please. We can't imagine anything and think, well, if I just do this in the name of Jesus Christ, he's happy about it. Those Jews were offering those sacrifices that Jesus Christ cleansed out in the name of Yahweh. They weren't listening to the scriptures. We must offer worship to God how it is taught in the word of God, no matter how inconvenient, how difficult, how unpopular, how anti-cultural, or how unexciting it is to our fleshly senses. If we call ourselves Christians, we worship God to please God and not ourselves. We don't go to church to make ourselves happy or to get a blessing. We go to church first and foremost to worship God and do what he has told us to do, how he has told us to do it. The elders here at Providence Reformed Baptist Church seek earnestly to offer unto God acceptable worship that is pleasing to him, that is biblically informed. I am a firsthand uh, account of our worship leader meticulously choosing each song purposefully because he wants to make sure that each of us sing songs that are theologically sound and do not veer to the right or to the left one iota. So when we sit here and sing these songs, know that they are curated so that they please God. And you're along for the ride. If there is anything in this church that you find to be opposed to the Bible, call it out. Don't hesitate to. There's not a single one of us here in this room that I think that would be unsatisfied if you said, we're not doing it the way that the Bible says that we should do it. Do that. Be like Jesus. Call it out. Do not be content with a church that refuses to fulfill what the Bible calls it to fulfill. I have a whole other section, but I'm going to go straight to my application finally. Um, God is in the business of purifying his people's lives. If he has done this to the temporary temple, which was to perish, how much more you ought to expect God to do this in your own life now that you are the temple of God if you do believe in him. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you, my beloved brothers and sisters, are that temple. This body that you possess is not your own, but it was bought with a price. With blood that is infinitely more valuable than the greatest riches that this world has to offer. Elon Musk could not purchase it. He could not even guess at the price with all the money that he has. Christ's blood is more valuable. There's a scene in the movie from Bruce Almighty where the main character is going through a fight with his wife. He leaves to go on a drive, and in desperation, he asks God for some kind of sign to know what God's doing. Comically, he drives down the street, and there are a lot of street signs that are pretty comedically timed, none of which, which are particularly helpful. But oftentimes, that's how we ask God for signs. We go through seasons of suffering where God is doing major work in our lives, and we can kind of sound a lot like Bruce or the Jews. Why are you doing this, God? What's going on? And we panic, and we're fearful. 
and we get anxious and we're filled with all sort of trepidation because, frankly, Jesus would be saying to you, how long do I have to be with you, you wicked and adulterous, faithless generation? Trust the Lord. We ask for those kind of signs and start questioning God and his work. We can question his wisdom. We can question his power. We can even question his love for us. We can start asking God to give us signs to show us what he's doing. Brothers and sisters, you must know that when you ask God those kind of questions, you are assuming a position of authority over him. It is parents, police officers, teachers, and bosses that ask difficult questions, not humble servants. During difficult seasons of trial and chastisement, you should rather place your hand over your mouth and sit silently waiting for God. If Job can learn this lesson prior to the resurrection without a single word of the scriptures yet being written, brothers and sisters, you can do it. You can trust in him, and you can know that he's working for your good. He has promised it, and God cannot lie. You have the holy scriptures in their fullness to alleviate all of your suffering. Listen here to the words of Matthew Henry. The word of God and the works of God do mutually and explain and illustrate each other. Dark scriptures are expounded by their accomplishment in providence and difficult providences are made easy by comparing them with the scriptures. See what great use it is to the disciples of Christ to be ready and mighty in the scriptures and to have their memories well stored with scripture truths by which they will be furnished for every good work. If the Jews but read and believed the scriptures, they would have been saved from this judgment. Christ would have come to his temple and rejoice alongside them, and instead he had to come with a whip. You must cling close to the scriptures, not only when it is light and easy for you to have them in mind, but you know, must know that their gravity reaches into the depths of the darkest night of your soul. If you but believe this and practice it through a deep saturation of the scriptures into your heart and mind, you will be saved from the suffering and misery of a godless Christian. Don't read these scriptures superficially either. Look at all the dynamic and prophetic ways that Christ expected his people to know his word. This book goes far, far beyond your expectations in its power and application. Sit under it until you are changed into the fashion and form of godliness that you so long to manifest if you are his, being conformed into the image of Christ. And I end with the words of Psalm 1. On his law, he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water who brings forth its fruit in its season. And all he does, he prospers. The ungodly are not so. Let's pray. Father in heaven, let us be close to you in your word. May we be like those Israelites who were rebuilding the second temple, who heard your word and wept because the people whom we were among and even our own selves fell far, far short of that standard of godliness that you call your people unto. May we know that when you are sought by us, Lord, if we have faith in Christ, you have already been found. That you are not far off, that you are not distant, you are not um, 
hiding yourself from us. We do not need to ask you for a sign. You have risen from the dead and all of history knows it because all of our calendars mark 2,024 years ago you rose from the dead and you split history in two. And here we are worshiping you here today and we thank you that you have freed us to do so by assuming the guilt of the temple and allowing us to come in and worship you because of the death you died for us on our behalf. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.